Well, good morning. As Celeste mentioned, my name is Steve Moore, but I am really excited to uh, announce to you that during the pre-service prayer time, I was given the honorific title of Steve Vandermore, <laughs> which is, uh, I understand, kind of like being knighted. Uh, the only condition is I, I'm only allowed to use the title in West Michigan, so I'll be coming here often to enjoy my new status. It's great to be with you. I've had an exciting weekend so far and trusting God with many others who are praying for much, much of the same this morning. Uh, I want to uh, talk to you today about the topic, the question, uh, biblical question, one that Jesus uh, engaged with, and that is, who is my neighbor? I want to get started with a little bit of uh, audience participation, just to make sure you're tracking with me. And so I'm going to ask you to complete the sentence for me. Very easy uh, to do, only two words. It's a small world. Yeah, I know it's early, but that was somewhat pathetic. I'm going to give you another chance now that those of you who didn't know do know the answer. It's just all about volume. It's a small world. Yes, thank you. And thanks to Walt Disney for getting us on the same page today. I'd like to add something to that statement. It's a small world after all, and it's getting smaller faster. And I want to talk to you today about the implications of that fact on us as Christ followers, because there are important implications. And I want to do that by giving you right off the top sort of the one big idea that will serve as the overarching umbrella for pretty much everything I want to say to you this morning. And here's the simple statement. If you're a note taker, this would be your chance to jot something down to sort of serve as the umbrella placeholder for the message. As the world gets smaller, the neighborhood gets bigger and loving your neighbor gets harder. Let me say that again. I want you to just uh, let that sink in for you. As the world gets smaller, the neighborhood gets bigger and loving your neighbor gets harder. Now, when we talk about the idea of the world getting smaller, of course, we're referring to the fact that even though there are more people alive today than in any other time in history, we are more connected with each other globally than we ever have been in history. And that connectedness sort of blurs for us our more intuitive understanding of what are the boundaries of responsibility that we might have for other people. And the reason why that line of responsibility for others gets blurry is because information is one of the gateways to responsibility. Here's what I mean by this. The one thing you could say 
in response to someone speaking to you and, and asking you, why didn't you, and you can fill in the blank after that, it doesn't really matter, why didn't you, the one thing you can say that you, you, you would feel has completely removed any sense of responsibility is to say, I didn't even, I didn't even know about it. So how could you hold me responsible for something I didn't even know about it? But if you know about a whole lot more than you ever did before, now all of a sudden the line gets blurry. If I don't know about it, of course I have no responsibility. But now that I do know what's happening on the far corners of the earth in almost real time, what am I supposed to do about that? So as the world gets smaller, the neighborhood, the, the, the people over whom I should have some sense of responsibility or at least maybe have to figure out if I'm responsible for them gets bigger. And therefore, loving my neighbor all of a sudden becomes harder. And so it complicates this fundamental but what was once a much simpler biblical question, who is my neighbor? Let me try to illustrate this shrinking world reality with one of many, many examples I could give you from my own life. Uh, January 12, 2010, a massive earthquake devastated Haiti. I'm sure you remember it. Um, the network that I lead has couple hundred churches and mission organizations that are part of it. Many of them uh, had work in Haiti. Some of them scores of staff members. So I was fairly intimately tracking this. I came home from my office that day. My family had other responsibilities. So when I got home, uh, there was no one else at the house. I got myself something to eat. I sat down at my table and I flipped on the news trying to just stay abreast to what was happening. And when I turned on the television that evening, I saw live footage of a demolished building devastated from the earthquake. There was a young girl, I believe she was in the neighborhood of 8, 9, 10 years old, laying there. And the rubble of the building had covered half of her body from her waist legs down. Her mom was kneeling beside her, rubbing her fingers through the little girl's hair. She was crying. This is all happening live. I'm watching it in 1080 HD on my TV. And the commentators are explaining that the rescue workers are trying to decide if they should amputate her legs right now and get her out of there or if they should try to remove the rubble and hope that they could save her legs. And as, as this is playing out for me, it was so awkward for me, I actually pushed my food away from myself, thinking, think, hey, this thought went through my mind. There's, there's something wrong with me sitting here eating my nice, comfortable dinner meal while this mom is watching this play out in real time. Now, if I didn't know anything about that, I didn't feel the earthquake. If there was no opportunity for me to have any awareness of what was happening there, then I wouldn't have been, I would have just been eating my dinner, waiting for my family to get home. But when the world gets smaller, 
the neighborhood gets bigger and it makes it more difficult to try to figure out who actually is my neighbor. Now, when I use the word neighbor here, of course, it's based on this, uh, perhaps one of the most famous stories that Jesus told. What we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus never used that label, Good Samaritan. That's our uh, two-word reduction of this story. In fact, the people who heard Jesus tell this story would have found the label Good Samaritan as an oxymoron. They would never have put the word good in front of the word Samaritan. For them, that's like saying good bad guy or orthodox heretic. You know, those two words don't don't go together. So Jesus told this story, and of course, it was in response to a question that he was asked, who is my neighbor? If you have your Bible, the the story is very familiar. It's in Luke chapter 10, but I'm just going to read a few of these verses just to remind you. In reply, Jesus said, this is verse 30, chapter 10 of Luke, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But, verse 33, story turns with the word but. But a Samaritan. You've got to understand how big of a twist Jesus is introducing into the story here. The angst that's created for the people who heard Jesus tell this story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. It's an amazing story. Way more here than we possibly have time to explore. But I want to look at the twist in the story that Jesus inserted here with the Samaritan. You can't possibly understand the level of emotional dissonance Jesus caused by making the Samaritan the good guy in the story. And in looking at how Jesus described this Samaritan's response... In essence, what Jesus is doing is he's choosing the Samaritan to give us a picture of what he would do. If you ask the question, what would Jesus do? Of course, the Samaritan is designed to show us what that would look like. And there's really three components to this that I I would highlight. The first in the text, it says that the Samaritan, like the two who went before him, the Samaritan saw him. And so the first point I want to make here is, is the idea of information. Information is the gateway to responsibility. It's easy to say, the reason I didn't is because I didn't know. But once you know, now all of a sudden it's a game changer. Now I have to decide what am I going to do, if anything. He saw him. He had information. The second part of it, it says, he took pity on him. Now different translations would translate it differently. The the Greek New Testament 
uses the word that is most often translated in English in our English Bibles as compassion. So it says took pity, but really what it means is he had compassion on him. So Jesus is saying information, awareness of this suffering, hurting person produced compassion. And then the third step in the story is he went to him. And of course, from there, we see the other things that happened. He took action. So information produced compassion. That compassion stimulated action. And Jesus is telling us the story using the Samaritan to say, here's how you would know what Jesus would do in this situation. Now, you see, Jesus... This is how the New Testament explains Jesus' life and ministry all the time. In fact, repeatedly in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus, when he saw hurting, lonely, tragically uh, troubled people, he was moved with what? Yeah, because it's the same process. And then typically after being moved with compassion, Jesus would do something. In response to that, information produced compassion, which generated some kind of action, some kind of response. Now, in this story, Jesus could have he could have made the hero a Jew. That would have been the logical thing to do. And then at the end, he could have emphasized, but we should show this kind of compassion to anyone, not just to people who are like us. But rather than do that, Jesus embedded this principle in the story. So by choosing a Samaritan, what Jesus is reinforcing is that compassion should be something that comes as a result of information, even when the person you found out about hates you, even when the person you found out about isn't like you. Even when the person you found out about probably would never say thank you for what you do. Even then, you show compassion. Jesus taught this in many other places. We don't have time to look at it. Where he said to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. But this is what Jesus is emphasizing. I asked myself in studying this some time ago... uh, I wonder what this would look like in modern life, loving someone who isn't like you, who doesn't like you, who wouldn't thank you. And I came across the amazing story of Julio Diaz, at the time a 31-year-old social worker in New York City. Maybe you heard Julio's story on national public radio. He uh, was a creature of habit. Every day after work, he would take the number six train home from Manhattan to the Bronx. And every night... He would get off the train one stop early so he could go to his favorite diner and have dinner. So he had made wonderful friends in this diner. Everybody knew Julio. One day Julio was on his way home from work, and like every other day, he gets off one stop early. He gets off the train, and as he's walking on the platform this particular evening, a young teenager comes up to him, pulls a knife, and asks for his wallet in a combination of street smarts and survival skills, Julio realized his wallet wasn't as important as the rest of him, and so he gave the kid his wallet. And as the kid started to walk away, Julio responded to the kid and he said, hey, wait a minute. Kid turns around and he says, you forgot something. And the kid looks at him with his dumbfounded face and Julio says, here, take my coat too. 
And the kid looks at him like, what's happening here? And he says, hey, I, you know, obviously you're in tough shape. You're, you're that desperate for money. It's pretty cold out. If you're going to be out robbing people all night, here, take my coat. And the kid reaches out to take Julio's coat. Julio said, look, man, all I was doing was go to dinner like I go every night on my way home from work. If you want to join me for dinner, I'm just going to the diner up here. And this kid said, okay. So Julio and a, and a teenage mugger stroll in the diner and sit down. Everybody in the diner knows Julio. He eats there every night. So every, the waitress, the manager, other customers, everybody, hey, Julio, hey, Julio. They don't know Julio's having dinner with a kid who just tried to mug him off the train. So they're talking. The kid says, like, do you own this place? No. How come everybody here knows? He goes, I eat here all the time. He said, I've never met anyone who had these kind of relationships. Julio has this remarkable conversation with this kid, talks to him about, oh, you know, what, what's happening in your life and what, what do you hope, what are your hopes and your dreams? What do you really want to accomplish in your life? Pretty soon the waitress comes over and she puts the, the ticket down. Julio says, I'll be happy to buy your dinner, but I don't have any money, so you have to give me my wallet back if, I, if I'm going to buy you dinner. The kid gives him his wallet back. Julio said, hey, how about this? Obviously, you needed money. How about this? I'll give you 20 bucks for your knife. The kid hands over his knife. Julio gives him $20. And they have this absolutely amazing exchange. Now, here's my point. I don't know everything about Julio's faith journey. But what I do know is if you ask yourself the question, what would it look like to love someone, a neighbor, who's not like you, who doesn't like you, who probably wouldn't thank you. That's what it looks like. It's crazy. It's counterintuitive. And yet, it is powerful. But here's the thing. When Jesus told this story, physical proximity was key. In other words, the only way you could have information about someone is if you were physically close to them. The passage says, when he came to where the man was, he saw him. That's the only way you're going to see him, is to come to where he was. But guess what? The world's not like that anymore. Now you can just be eating dinner in your house and be staring into the face of somebody in a disaster in some other part of the world in real time. So physical proximity is no longer a limiting factor. The world is very much smaller. The neighborhood is very much bigger. And loving your neighbor is significantly harder. So what would Jesus have to say? Would he say, well, it's only limited to the people who are physically near you. The fact that, you know, all these other things have changed. No, I don't think Jesus would say that. I think he would say that he wants us to be a neighbor to people who are not like us, to people who don't like us, to people who wouldn't repay us, to people who wouldn't thank us even if they are not physically near us. And this can be overwhelming. Like, how do you figure that out? How do you, how do you keep from falling into the trap of, of feeling like you're some kind of a Messiah complex and you have to rescue everyone around the world? It's overwhelming. None of us could live up to that, nor should we try. So I want to give you three simple thoughts in closing here that I hope will help you navigate your way through this blurry line of responsibility for the neighbors 
in that growing neighborhood, in that shrinking world. Here's the first thought. Number one is this, how you respond to the needs of others is determined by who you love the most. Please catch this. How you respond to the needs of others is determined by who you love the most. This story began with Jesus having a conversation with a religious expert, a teacher in the law. And the conversation we revolved around love. Love the Lord your God first. Love your neighbor as yourself. See, the reality is, if you want to be more compassionate with others, focus on being more intimate with God. Please catch this. You don't conjure up compassion for other people by some kind of, you know, mental or emotional gymnastics where you just say, I'm going to be more loving. No, here's, here's what you do. You focus on loving and pursuing intimacy with God. And the closer you get to God, the more of God's perspective, the more of His values, the more of God's heart gets deposited into your heart and you don't even have to try to manufacture it. It just happens. And so the more intimate you are with God, the more compassionate you are with others. And so if you're struggling and saying, I'd like to be more engaged with other people, how do I do that? Focus on God and begin to pursue intimacy with God. And out of the overflow of that, you'll start loving others. There's an amazing story in the history of mission of a young girl by the name of Amy who was a teenager living in Belfast, Ireland, in the middle of the uh, 1880s. She was singing in a choir, a girls' choir. And one of the songs they were performing was a brand new song that had just migrated from the U.S. over to the U.K. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And in their choir, they were singing that song. And Amy said, one day as they were singing that song in the choir, for the first time in her life, it fully registered to her that God really, truly loved her, just her. And she was just overwhelmed with the love of God. And in that moment, she began to reach out to God, pursuing intimacy with God, longing to know and experience the fullness of God. Not long after that, Amy was in a tea shop in Belfast with her mom. And they were having proper tea and biscuits. And Amy looked up from the table, and she saw at the window of the tea shop a little girl standing there, hands pressed up against the, against the glass, her face up against the glass. And Amy just saw, oh, what a cute little girl over there. And she goes on, and they get up to leave. They walk out the door, and as they step out of the tea shop, Amy looks over at this little girl and realizes it wasn't everything she thought it was. Here was this girl, barefoot, in a dress that was dirty and torn, standing there in the cool drizzle. And Amy realized this little girl was looking in that tea shop trying to imagine what would it be like to have a mom who would take me into a place like that. And in that moment... Without any words being spoken, as Amy looked into the eyes of this little girl, the compassion of God 
just began to flow through her toward this little girl. She never even spoke to her. She went home that night and she wrote in her journal that evening about that experience. She wrote a little poem and she said, when I grow up and money have, I know what I will do. I'll build a safe and lovely place for little girls like you. And then in a moment of honest self-reflection, Amy wrote, And yet, as of now, I do nothing for little girls like you. But you see, it was the, the love relationship she had with God that opened her eyes of compassion for this girl. And so Amy decided to take action. She started reaching out to the girls in her neighborhood. She started a little Bible club. It eventually grew into an amazing ministry I don't have time to tell you about now. But it grew not by Amy trying to manufacture compassion for a little girl, but by Amy engaging the love of God, which in turn opened her eyes. How you respond to the needs of others is determined by who you love the most. Second principle I would give you is this. Find your passion and you will find your neighbor. Now let me explain what I mean by this. I think we have to sort out our sense of responsibility to everyone, but you can't solve every problem. You can't meet every need. You can't be involved in every ministry. It's not possible. So how do I know where I should serve? How do I know where I should leverage my time, my giftedness, my resources to make a difference? Here's what I know. Well, here's what I've learned from talking to so many people. You meet someone who's laser focused on a specific kind of ministry here, there, around the world, wherever it might be. And you talk to that person, you will discover that that person has some clearly identifiable life shaping experiences that God used to bend that person's heart in the direction of that particular need. And it was the passion that God birthed that helped narrow their focus and they don't have to feel guilty about I'm not involved in this ministry because I'm involved in this ministry and the reason is this is where God has put me. And well, you say, well, I don't, that sounds too mystical. How do I figure that out? Let me make it simple for you. Please, this is, this is so helpful and I've seen this in my own life and many, many others. If you just focus on asking this question first, God, what kingdom resources have you deposited inside of me? What's my talents? What are my skills? What are my spiritual gifts? You focus on that question first. You can handle that. There are people here in this church who will help you figure that out. You go talk to someone. It doesn't have to be just one of the pastors. There are key people throughout this church you can connect with. Start with your small group leader or if you're, you, you can figure it out. And if you figure out what your gifts are, and then you just start saying, now I'm going to start using my gifts wherever it is that God gives me opportunity to do so. And you begin to use those gifts in the service of other people. God will take care of giving you the life shaping experiences like the one that Amy had that will help you know this is the passion that fuels my service. And I need to focus on this area of ministry. Find your passion. You'll find your neighbor. Thirdly, do for a few what you wish you could do for many. Please catch this. It is so overwhelming to just see what's happening around the world. You have to go climb under a rock somewhere not to be deluged with the 
overwhelming need. It's, it's massive. And it's so easy to just feel like the little bit I might be able, you know, what could, what, what could the little bit I have to offer do? You know, you see like the Haiti earthquake and you think the $25 I could give is like, what difference is that going to make in the millions and millions of dollars are going to be needed? Never stopping to think that a million other people just had the same thought. And if everybody just did it, it would be a long ways there. And you have no way of knowing how your obedience could be a trigger for somebody else that you know and somebody else beyond there. You might be that one little uh, gust of wind that triggers the avalanche of obedience around you. You have no way of knowing how God's going to use it. So just do for a few what you wish you could do for many and then let God take care of the rest. Amy's life is such a powerful example of this. Fast forwarding from her time in Belfast, a couple of decades, Amy was in India and she was serving faithfully there. And one day, some Indian colleagues brought a little girl to Amy who had escaped from temple prostitution. Her parents had sold her into ritual prostitution in a Hindu temple. And she had escaped, and they brought her to Amy. And Amy looked into the eyes of this little girl. And she had a flashback. She remembered something she wrote in her journal as a 17-year-old. When I grow up and money have, I know what I will do. I'll build a safe and lovely place for little girls like you. And Amy said she realized God was preparing her. And she looked into the face of that little girl and she said, I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to do for a few what I wish I could do for many. And Amy gave the rest of her life to rescuing those little girls. Eventually lobbying the government, making it illegal for people to even sell their little girls into places like that. How did she know that that was supposed to be the focus of her whole life? Well, God gave her life-shaping experiences even as a teenager that weren't born out of her attempt to sort of manufacture compassion. It was born out of her trying to love God. And when she started loving God, all of a sudden, God started loving other people right through her. And then the loving of those people, Amy had the chance to start using her gifts. And in using her gifts, God began to refine the passion and focus the energy of her life. And so, here's my big idea again. As the world gets smaller, the neighborhood gets bigger. And loving your neighbor gets harder. And it would be very easy for us to just simply go through a weekend like this and say the needs around the world are so overwhelming and I'm so small. There's hardly anything I can think of possibly being able to do that would actually matter. And I want to encourage you, just remind you of these three closing thoughts again. How I believe you can break through that blur, that fog. How you respond to the needs of others is determined by who you love the most. Focus on the pursuit of loving God and then let Him love other people through you.
Find your passion. You will find your neighbor. Just focus on figuring out what your gifts are and then start using them. And God will provide those life-shaping experiences. And then do for a few what you wish you could do for many. You say, well, I can't support every missionary that comes through here. No, you can't. You can support one or two. I can't go on every outreach project. No, you can't. No, well, you could do one. Do for a few what you wish you could do for many. Let me pray for you. Daddy, Father, we live in a big world that is getting smaller. And we know that God has asked us, God has commanded us to love our neighbors. We just need to figure out who they are. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that in the sovereign and very personal, intimate way that you speak to us today, even right now in this place, you would begin to open our eyes, fresh and new, to the next steps you want us to take. Please, God, don't let us walk our way through, sleepwalk our way through this weekend without locking in to the step of obedience you're asking us to take as we seek to love you and let you through us love our neighbors here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.